Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. A two-parter on 60 Minutes, which they rarely do. The first segment and second segment were both about how ready is our Navy to go up against China if they invade Taiwan. And I mean, it was... Not hinting at it. I mean, it was just laid out. This is what's going to happen. They're going to try to take Taiwan. We're going to stop them, and it's going to be a Navy battle. Who wins? That's what the story was. Isn't that the way you took it? Well, right. And here are the missiles they will shoot at our aircraft carriers. It will kill many guys and wreck many planes. What are we going to do about it? What will we shoot back at them? Right. Yeah, that was pretty pointed. It was serious. Makes you just realize, man, this is... Woo-wee! I also saw a thought, and we got uh, more clips from uh, 60 Minutes to Play here in the next couple of seconds. For some reason, they did this thing with the map where they showed that the way that the world looks at the map and the way that China looks at the map. Did you see that yeah. part? I, thought that, I did. I thought that was great. But that really made an impression on me. Well, yeah, especially it hadn't occurred to me that there is a fence of U.S. allies not by between accident. China and the open sea. Yeah, not by accident. Right, Japan, uh, Taiwan, and the Philippines form, uh, in in essence, a a giant fence across the Pacific that kind of pens China in. Right, where half of the world's trade goes through. If China can take that part of the sea and, like, basically be in a you know like a mob boss, oh yeah, your ships can go through, but you're going to have to pay us this much. Or these ships can go through, but those can't. You know, they right. could really control the world economy. Um, what we're trying to do is just keep the lanes open so everybody gets to go wherever they want. Uh, but them taking Taiwan would really, uh, you know, open up a hole in that fence that has been created by us and the rest of the world to keep China from being able to dictate the terms of half the world's trade. Also, I am for Guam becoming a state tomorrow. Where do I vote? Because that made yeah, a pretty big you. impression on me, too. If Guam's a state, their things look a lot different. Don't you think? How so? Uh, in terms of, yeah, you can't be getting this jumpy this close to the United States. I mean, we can flat out say the United States if Guam's yeah. a state. Yeah, yeah, interesting. I hadn't thought about that much. Yeah, Guam needs to become a state tomorrow. Where do I vote? I'm going to get a little Guam flag. And... Guam is in the way Western Pacific, if you're not familiar yeah, with the geography. Exactly. Well, it's it's not. Well, it's it's already an American whatever it is. They vote, don't they? It's a territory protectorate. We got a giant uh, naval base there. Yeah, I know that because that was the argument that that commander of the Pacific Fleet made. Nor O'Donnell said something about you know them being over there and we are being way over there. And he said, no, no, no. The United States is in this part of the country, Guam, so, uh, the world, Guam. So I mean, we're yeah. already making that argument. No, no, no. We're we're right here. The United States is right here. If they this can, is our backyard. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. That was the quote yeah. she was talking about it being yeah. China's backyard. He said, no, it's our backyard too. Guam's here. And so Guam is more legit than them building islands in the middle of the ocean and claiming that's part of China. Mm -hmm. At least Guam was created by God in the seas. Not (laughs) piling a bunch of dirt in the ocean and call it an island. the Armstrong Doctrine. (laughs) Anyway, uh, let's hear some more from Nora O'Donnell and this admiral who runs the Pacific Fleet. We call it the decade of concern. We've seen a tenfold increase in the size of the PRC Navy. Yes, so ours is uh, shrinking. Theirs is growing at at least the previous rate was it got 10 times as big in 10 years, which is really quite a stunning number. Technically speaking, the Chinese now have the largest 
Navy in the world in terms of number of ships, correct? Yes. Do the yes. numbers matter? Yes. As the saying goes, quantity has a quality all its own. At some point, are they going to reach numbers that we can't prevail over? I'm not comfortable with the trajectory. Yeah, I'll bet. And here's Representative Gallagher a little on that before I'll get to some of the stats. Congressman Gallagher is a Marine veteran who represents Green Bay, Wisconsin. He chairs the new House Committee on China. He's concerned that under the Navy's current plan, the fleet will shrink to 280 ships by 2027. The same year, the CIA says China has set for having the capability to take Taiwan by force. So we will be weakest when our enemy is potentially strongest. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Wow. Wow. Thank God for our subservice, which continues to be uh, the elite of the elite on Earth. Yeah, and they uh, featured on 60 Minutes last night some new unmanned underwater drone thingy that's going to have some tremendous capabilities. But it ain't built yet. But the idea that our Navy would be the weakest it's been in decades at the same time that China's Navy is the strongest it's ever been, and we can see that coming, is uh, pretty troubling. So China has 19 major shipyards, one of which has more production capacity than all of the United States shipyards combined. So they have 19, and one of them is so big it's bigger than all of ours combined. We really went... Uh, went down in sh- in shipbuilding after the Cold War ended. I forget the stat they had on there, but we went from like thirty some to seven or something. Uh, uh, it was uh, it was dramatic. Um, China is outbuilding many of the Western navies combined, and then this guy they had on sixty Minutes last night, who is with the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments says by investing heavily in defense industrial infrastructure, China's navy now builds warships much more quickly quickly than the United States. So unless we build uh, increase our shipbuilding capacity, we can't catch up. Because they're building them as fast as they can. We They will continue to get further ahead of us. Yeah, yeah, we're behind and falling further behind. Yeah, which is pretty troubling. Well, and it's, uh, you know, just to throw in a note of cynicism, so many decisions about which weapon systems are built and when have to do with uh, who's a powerful congressman and, who lobbies whom most successfully, never mind the geopolitical realities of the thing. It's a money deal. Boy, some of the, some of the stuff where they were talking about China sinking a couple of our carriers, and then the, the, the guy on, uh, with the Navy pointing out that there are 5,000 people on this carrier, you know, they didn't take, go to that next sentence where you would say, so 5,000 people would die in one shot, but that's clearly what would happen. So that piece on 60 Minutes last night was a was a serious uh, portion of journalism that they had, as she mentioned, been working on for many, many months. And uh, and I noticed from the chatter on Twitter among your big thinkers that it 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 made a, it, you know, it left a mark in terms of the conversation about our readiness to go up against China and the likelihood of it and all that sort of stuff. It's 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 for real. The two the, the two most powerful countries in the world are on a. You know, they're on train tracks headed toward each other. Unless something happens, there is going to be a collision. But so this was not from the 60 Minutes piece last night. Uh, This was actually retweeted by Jonah Goldberg. This is from a couple of weeks ago. Testimony in Congress, the Secretary of the Navy. I can tell you that I have made climate one of my top priorities 
Everywhere from Vietnam to Ghana to right there in the Caribbean, we are collaborating on projects enabling best practices to cross-pollinate. I guarantee you, whoever's reporting to Xi in China, don't give a crap about climate change in terms of getting their Navy ready to go to war with the big, bad United States of America. It never crosses their mind. They haven't spent a second thinking about it or a penny in terms of the impact. How much time do you spend their uh, figure they're spending on their uh, transgender sailors policies as well? Now, I hope I hope that that was just to make people happy in Congress or half the country happy or whatever, that he just said that because he thought he had to politically. But if they're spending any time in the Navy, any money or time worried about this, I can tell you I've made climate one of my top priorities. One of your top priorities while our enemy... is not doing it at all. I'm hoping it's what you're suggesting. He was just giving a little lip service to the lefties in Congress to get them off their back. God, I hope so, too. When you go in front of Congress as a a representative at a high level of the United States military, you're going to put up with some ridiculous stuff. You are going to be asked questions. You are going to be pushed in directions that you know are crazy. But you get these woke Barbara Boxer back in the day or AOC type people who have no grasp of reality and or they are just virtue signaling for their far left base. And and they are much more interested in, in getting the political contributions or the credit for expressing their beliefs than the preparedness of the United States to defend itself. I mean, it's not even a pro- they don't even think about that latter concern. Um, and so, yes, you are ready to be asked crap, told crap, and you might be prepared to answer with some crap. And I'm hoping that's it. Yeah, me too. Because it, uh, it's going to happen. The fact that we just dominated their Navy a decade ago, and now they have a bigger Navy than us, and, it's, and the gap is going to widen over the next 10 years is super troubling. Well, Jack, I'll tell you, as a political scientist, there are real advantages to dictatorships. They're efficient. They're brutal. They're horrible. They're indefensible. They're immoral, but they are efficient in a lot of ways. Well, they are very inefficient in other ways, too, as we've seen with Russia. So we could hope that a lot of what we believe about China to be true and a lot of what they believe about their own military to be true is is, similar to Russia. People were skimming at various levels or, or not uh, not actually meeting the uh, various standards that they that were supposed to. And they were lying because that's what you do in communist countries. Armstrong and Getty. The United States Navy helped secure victory in two world wars and the Cold War. Today, the Navy remains a formidable fighting force. But even officers within the service have questioned its readiness. While the U.S. spent 20 years fighting land wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the Pentagon watched China, its greatest geopolitical rival of the 21st century, build the largest navy in the world. China has threatened to use that navy to invade Taiwan, an important American ally. As tensions with China continue to rise, we wanted to know more about the current state of the U.S. Navy and how it's trying to deter China while preparing for the possibility of war. The story will continue in a moment. The Navy's always on alert. 
one-third of the Navy is always deployed and operating at all times. The Navy's mustering right now about 300 ships, and there are about 100 ships at sea right now all around the globe. Admiral Samuel Paparo commands the U.S. Pacific Fleet, whose 200 ships and 150,000 sailors and civilians make up 60 percent of the entire U.S. Navy. We met him last month on the aircraft carrier USS Nimitz, deployed near the U.S. territory of Guam, southeast of Taiwan and the People's Republic of China, or PRC. You've been operating as a naval officer for 40 years. How has operating in the Western Pacific changed? In the early 2000s, the PRC Navy mustered about 37 vessels. Today, they're mustering 350 vessels. This month, China's new foreign minister, Qin Gong, delivered a stern warning to the U.S. He said that if Washington does not change course in its stance towards China, conflict and confrontation is inevitable. This past August, when then-Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi became the most senior U.S. political figure to visit Taiwan in 25 years, China called it a blatant provocation. The People's Liberation Army fired ballistic missiles into the sea around Taiwan and encircled the island with aircraft and warships. So are Chinese warships now operating closer to Taiwan after Nancy Pelosi's visit? Yes. The best guess anyone has about China's ultimate intentions for Taiwan comes from the CIA. According to its intelligence assessment, China's President Xi Jinping has ordered the People's Liberation Army to be prepared to take back the island by force by 2027. And if China invades Taiwan, what will the U.S. Navy do? It's a decision of the President of the United States and a decision of the Congress. It's our duty to be ready for that. But the bulk of the United States Navy will be deployed rapidly to the Western Pacific to come to the aid of Taiwan if the order comes to aid Taiwan in thwarting that invasion. Is the U.S. Navy ready? We're ready, yes. Uh, I'll never admit to being ready enough. Yes. President Biden has declared four times, including on 60 Minutes, that the U.S. military would defend Taiwan, which is a democracy and the world's leading producer of advanced microchips. To reach the USS Nimitz, we first traveled to America's westernmost territory, the island of Guam, in the middle of the Pacific. Guam was taken by Imperial Japan two days after the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941. U.S. Marines recaptured it two and a half years later, and the island, about the size of Chicago, became an indispensable strategic foothold in the Western Pacific, as it remains today. From Guam, we boarded a Navy C-2 Greyhound. The Cold War-era transport plane takes people and supplies back and forth from land to the carrier. It was a short flight to the ship and an even shorter landing. Incredible. First God landing? Yes. Oh, very nice. Certain operations. Before Admiral Paparo rose to lead the Pacific Fleet, he flew jets and graduated from the school known as Top Gun. When you talk about ships, what's the most powerful in the U.S. Navy? It's an aircraft carrier, and its air wing is capable of. 150 strike or air-to-air sorties per day. 
with, uh, at its surge levels, the ability to deliver 900 precision-guided munitions every day and reloadable every night. So even though China now has the largest Navy in the world, they don't have anything like this in terms of aircraft carriers. They do not, but they're working towards it. And they have, they have two operational aircraft carriers right now. That's China's two diesel-fueled carriers to the U.S.'s 11 nuclear-powered ones that can carry a total of about 1,000 attack aircraft, more than the navies of every other nation on Earth combined. I'll tell you this, we are here to stay, right, in the South China Sea and in this part of the world. And I think that's the message that we really want to convey to not only China, but the entire world. We will sail wherever international law allows. Lieutenant Commander David Ash flies an F-A-18. Do you get briefed on China's growing military threat and the progress that their Navy is making? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely we do. And they are making great progress in a lot of key areas. Uh, the Chinese. The Chinese are, from a military standpoint. This video from weapons systems officer, Lieutenant Commander Matthew Carlton, shows his F-A-18 strafing ground targets with a machine gun on a U.S. weapons range near Guam. The pilots on the Nimitz also conduct air-to-air combat, or dogfighting drills, daily. How aggressive has China become in the air? Aggressive. And uh, just some examples include unsafe, unprofessional intercepts, where they move within single digits of feet of other aircraft, flashing the weapons that they have on board to the air crew of the other aircraft, operating in international airspace, maneuvering their aircraft in such a way that denies the, the ability to turn in one direction. If they're safe and professional, then there's no problem. Everybody has the right to fly and sail wherever international law dictates. But the Chinese are pushing that. They are pushing it. China's increasingly aggressive moves in the Western Pacific, encroaching on territory, illegal fishing, and building bases in the middle of the South China Sea, have pushed nations like Japan and the Philippines to forge closer military ties to the U.S. And this past week, Britain, the U.S., and Australia signed a landmark deal to jointly develop nuclear-powered attack submarines to patrol the Pacific. This is how China and Taiwan appear on most maps. This is how the Chinese Communist Party sees the Western Pacific, including the South and East China Seas from Beijing. Taiwan is the fulcrum in what China's leaders call the First Island Chain, a constellation of U.S. allies that stretches across its entire coast. Control of Taiwan is the strategic key to unlocking direct access to the Pacific and the sea lanes where about 50 percent of the world's commerce gets transported. China has accused the United States of trying to contain them. What do you say to China? I would say, uh, do you need to be contained? Are you expanding? Are you an expansionist power? To a very great extent, the United States was the champion for China's rise. And in no way are we seeking to contain China. What we are seeking for them to play by the rules. China's Navy, a branch of the People's Liberation Army, is now the world's largest. 
China is also using its 9,000-mile coastline to rewrite the rules of fighting at sea, as these images from Chinese state media show. Its military has invested heavily in long-range, precision-guided weapons, like the DF-21 and DF-26, that can be used to target ships. China's People's Liberation Army Rocket Force calls them carrier killers and has practiced shooting them at mock-ups of American ships in the desert that look a lot like the Nimitz. Since the United States has been operating in the Western Pacific, China's backyard, they've been developing missiles to attack our assets, haven't they? Specific missiles. Absolutely, yes. First, I'll say the United States is also a Western Pacific nation. So Guam. it's not it's not China's backyard. It's you know, it is a free and open Indo-Pacific that encompasses numerous partners and treaty allies. And yes, we have seen them greatly enhance their power projection capability. How much do you worry about the PLA rocket force? I worry, you know, I'd be a fool to not worry about. It. Of course I worry about the PLA rocket force. Of course I work every single day to develop the tactics and the techniques and the procedures to counter it and to continue to develop the systems that can also defend uh, against them. About how far are we from mainland China? 1,500 nautical miles. They can hit us. Yes, they can. If they've got the targeting in place, they could hit this aircraft carrier. If I don't want to be hit, there's something I can do about it. U.S. Navy planners aren't just plotting how to evade China's rocket force, but also how they could effectively fight back. From the vicinity of Guam, none of the aircraft on this ship has the range to approach Taiwan without refueling in the air. Ships like the U.S. destroyer Wayne E. Meyer, part of the Nimitz strike group, would need to sail much closer towards China to fire their missiles at any force invading Taiwan. One naval scholar we spoke to likened it to a boxing match in which a fighter, in this case China, has much longer arms than their potential opponent, the U.S. I'll give you a lot of examples where a shorter fighter was able to prevail over a long-arm fighter by being on their toes, by maneuvering, And we can also stick and move uh, while we're developing those those longer-range weapons. There is another area of modern naval warfare where the U.S. had a head start and retains a deep advantage over China. I just noticed out of the corner of my eye... This This is is a 688-class, a Los Angeles-class attack submarine. This is the most capable submarine on the planet. You know, with the exception of the Virginia-class, our newer class of submarines. The exact number is classified, but our best estimate is that there are about a dozen nuclear-powered fast-attack submarines patrolling the Pacific at any time. They are difficult to detect and track, something China is trying to solve. How much more advanced is U.S. submarine technology than Chinese capability? A generation. Generation. And uh, by generation, think 10 or 20 years, but broadly... I don't really talk in depth about submarine capabilities. It's the silent service. Since Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, China's military leaders have themselves been mostly silent and ignored efforts by the U.S. military to keep the lines of communication open, even when a Chinese spy balloon breached American airspace and was shot down by the U.S. 
If the U.S. and Chinese militaries can't communicate over a Chinese spy balloon, then what's going to happen when there's a real crisis in the South China Sea or with Taiwan? We'll hope that they'll answer the phone. Else, we'll do our very best assessment based on the things that they say in open source and based on their behavior to divine their intentions, and we'll act accordingly. Doesn't that make the situation even more dangerous if U.S. and Chinese militaries are not talking? Yes. Several sources within the Pentagon tell 60 Minutes that if China invaded Taiwan, it could very well kick off in outer space, with both sides targeting the other's satellites that enable precision-guided weaponry. Cyber attacks on American cities and the sabotage of ports on the west coast of the U.S. mainland could follow. One recent non-classified war game had the U.S. prevailing but losing 20 ships, including two carriers. Does that sound about right? That is a plausible outcome. I can imagine a more pessimistic outcome, and I can imagine a more optimistic outcome. We should be clear-eyed about the costs that we're potentially incurring. There are about 5,000 Americans on board the Nimitz. The ship is nearly half a century old. Given the Navy's current needs in the Pacific, and because there's fuel left in its nuclear reactors, the carrier's life at sea is going to be extended. Is it your hope that the power of the U.S. Navy, the force posture of the U.S. Navy, will deter a Chinese invasion of Taiwan? It's not my hope, it's my duty, in conjunction with allies and partners, to deliver intolerable costs to anybody that would upend the order in violation of the nation's security or in violation of the nation's interests. The saying, which is, see pachem parabellum, which is, if you want peace, prepare for war. As China's President Xi prepares for a state visit in Russia tomorrow to strengthen that alliance, we look at critical questions about the state of the U.S. Navy and its readiness when we come back. Sixty Minutes has spent months talking to current and former naval officers, military strategists, and politicians about the state of the U.S. Navy. One common thread in our reporting is unease, both about the size of the U.S. fleet and its readiness to fight. The Navy's ships are being retired faster than they're getting replaced, while the Navy of the People's Republic of China, or PRC, grows larger and more lethal by the year. We asked the commander of the U.S. Pacific Fleet, Admiral Samuel Paparo, about this on our visit to the USS Nimitz, the oldest aircraft carrier in the Navy. The story will continue in a moment. We call it the decade of concern. We've seen a tenfold increase in the size of the PRC Navy. Technically speaking, the Chinese now have the largest Navy in the world in terms of number of ships, correct? Yes. Do the yes. numbers matter? Yes. As the saying goes, quantity has a quality all its own. At some point, are they going to reach numbers that we can't prevail over? I'm not comfortable with the trajectory. If you look at a map of the Indo-Pacific, one thing becomes clear. There's a lot of water on that map. And so ours has to be a maritime 
strategy. Republican Mike Gallagher and Democrat Elaine Loria served together on the House Armed Services Committee in the last Congress. What is it about the U.S. Navy that has allowed the two of you to find common cause? I think we share a sense of the urgency of the moment. We see increasing threats from China in particular in the Indo-Pacific. We feel like we're not moving fast enough to build a bigger Navy. Congressman Gallagher is a Marine veteran who represents Green Bay, Wisconsin. He chairs the new House Committee on China. He's concerned that under the Navy's current plan, the fleet will shrink to 280 ships by 2027, the same year the CIA says China has set for having the capability to take Taiwan by force. So we will be weakest when our enemy is potentially strongest. China's increased rhetoric and potential aggression against Taiwan, we're going to have to be ready to respond today with the forces we have today. Former Congresswoman Elaine Loria represented Virginia Beach until this past January. An Annapolis graduate, Loria had a 20-year naval career before being elected to Congress. What would you say the state of the U.S. Navy is today? I think the Navy has not received the attention and resources that it needs over two decades. I mean, I served on six different ships. Every single one of those ships was either built during or a product of the fleet that was built um, in the Cold War. Both Mike Gallagher and Elaine Loria have lobbied for government money for the shipyards in or near their districts. But they say this is less about jobs and more about national security. If we don't get this right, all of these other things we're doing in Congress ultimately that might not matter. If you think about what a coherent grand strategy vis-a-vis China would be, hard power would be the most important part of that, and the Navy would be the most important component of your hard power investments. Over the last two decades, the Navy spent $55 billion on two investments that did not pan out. The first was a class of destroyers known as the Zumwalt. The futuristic fighting ships were supposed to revolutionize naval warfare. 32 were ordered, but only three were ever launched. The cost of each ship, by one estimate, was upwards of $8 billion, making them the three most expensive destroyers ever put to sea. Another example is the Littoral Combat Ship, or LCS, designed to be a fast, all-purpose warship for shallow waters. $30 billion later, the program ran aground after structural defects and engine trouble. Within the Navy, the LCS earned the unfortunate nickname Little Crappy Ship. The Navy's last few decades have been described as a lost generation of shipbuilding. Is that overly dramatic? I don't think so. We're still struggling to build ships on time, on budget, and that's something we absolutely need to fix going forward. This past week, we spoke with Admiral Mike Gilday at the Pentagon. He is the chief of naval operations and is responsible for building, maintaining, and equipping the entire U.S. Navy. Is the Navy in crisis? No. The Navy's not in crisis. The Navy is out on point every single day. Is it being outpaced by China? No. Our Navy's still in a position to prevail. But um, that's not blind confidence. We are concerned with the trajectory that China's on, with China's behavior. But we are in a good position right now uh, if we did ever get into a fight against them. How would you describe what China has been able to do militarily over the last 20 years? The most alarming thing is the growth of not only their conventional forces, but also their strategic nuclear forces, their cyber capability, their space capability, and how they're using that 
to force other nations' uh, navies out of certain areas in the South China Sea. Instead of recognizing international law, they want to control where those goods flow and how. What lessons did the U.S. Navy learn from some of the shipbuilding mistakes of the last 20 years? I think one of the things that we learned uh, was that we need to uh, have the design well in place before we begin bending metal. And so we are going back uh, to the past, to what we did in the 80s and the 90s. The Navy has the lead. There is a tendency among the great powers to look at each other's naval buildups with deep suspicion. Toshi Yoshihara of the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments may know more than any scholar in the West about China's Navy. China will have about 440 ships by 2030, and that's according to the Pentagon. Why is China able to build more warships more quickly than the U.S.? China has clearly invested in this defense industrial infrastructure to produce these ships, which allows them to produce multiple ships simultaneously, essentially outbuilding many of the Western navies combined. China's navy piggybacks on a booming commercial shipbuilding industry kept afloat by generous state subsidies, inexpensive materials, and cheap labor. In the United States, it's a different story. After the Cold War ended, the shipbuilding industry consolidated, and many of the yards where ships were both built and maintained closed down. What do you see when you see China's shipbuilding program? It's very robust. Do we have enough shipyards? No. I wish that we had more commercial shipyards. Over my career, we've gone from more than 30 shipyards down to about seven that we rely upon on a day-to-day basis to build ships. One of those yards is run by Huntington Ingalls Industries, which built the -the state-of-the-art new Ford-class aircraft carrier. After controlled explosions in 2021, to prove it could withstand combat, the Ford got closer to deployment, six years late, and billions of dollars over budget. The Navy's not just struggling to build new ships on time. According to the Government Accountability Office, or GAO, there's a multi-year backlog repairing the ships in the fleet. Our maintenance backlog is one of the primary things that I'm working on to correct. So just three years ago, we had 7,700 delay days, that is extra days in a shipyard by ships when they weren't operational. We have cut that down to 3,000. We are not satisfied. Maintenance delays mean sailors can't come home because the ship that's supposed to replace them is not ready. It means longer deployments. It means away from your family more. That's a big strain on the workforce. The more ships that we can have available to send at sea alleviates many of those problems that you pointed out. Sailors join the Navy to see the world. And so it's my job to make sure that those maintenance delays go to zero and we can get those ships to sea as quickly as possible. In the last year alone, at least 10 sailors assigned to ships undergoing maintenance or working at maintenance facilities have died by suicide. It is a problem that we're taking very, very seriously. And down to every leader in our Navy, everybody has a responsibility to look out for each other, take care of each other. There is no wrong door to knock on when you need help. Admiral Gilday says the U.S. Navy's main advantage over China is America's sailors. His goal is to modernize the U.S. fleet and have those sailors serving alongside hundreds of unmanned vessels by 2045. 
I think unmanned is the future. And so I think that uh, some 40% of our fleet in the future, I believe, is going to be unmanned. Are these like underwater drones? Some of them are uh, highly capable, capable of delivering mines and perhaps other types of weapons. Admiral Gilday is talking about the Orca, an extra-large unmanned undersea vehicle. Can you say what it will do, or is that classified? Well, uh, at a minimum, it'll have a clandestine mine laying capability. So it'll be done in a way that is very secretive, uh, but very effective. But the GAO reports that it's already a quarter of a billion dollars over budget and three years behind schedule. Uh, that particular platform is behind schedule. It's the first of a kind. When it delivers, I see a very high return on investment from that particular platform. Because? Because uh, it will be among the most lethal and stealthy platforms uh, in the arsenal of the U.S. military. The Navy's total budget request for fiscal year 2024 is over a quarter of a trillion dollars an $11 billion increase from last year. The focus is on China. The U.S. defense posture is viewed as aggressive by the Chinese. The foreign minister just said, look, stop the containment. This may lead to conflict. Perhaps the Chinese minister doesn't like the fact that the U.S. Navy is operating in collaboration with dozens of navies around the world to ensure that the maritime commons remains free and open for all nations. The Chinese want to dictate those terms, and so they don't like our presence. But our presence is not intended to be provocative. It's intended to assure and to reassure allies and partners around the world that those sea lanes do remain open. The global economy literally floats on seawater. 